Hello, my name's Helen Russell. I'm a journalist, happiness researcher and author. And How To Be Sad is the podcast exploring why we get sad, what we can do when we're sad, and how we can all get happier by learning to be sad better, inspired by the book of the same name. Each episode, I'll be joined by a special guest sharing their own experiences. Welcome to How To Be Sad. Sophie Walker is a journalist, activist and former politician. She spent 20 years at Reuters and after a long and trying journey supporting her daughter through a diagnosis of autism, started campaigning for disability rights. She went on to help create the Women's Equality Party and ran for London Mayor. Sophie now works for the feminist law firm McAllister Olivarius. She's the author of Five Rules for Rebellion, Let's Change the World Ourselves, and says now, we can only do this together. Our plan to save the world has to ensure that you can keep going when I'm flagging and that I can keep going when you're flagging. Sophie Walker, thank you so much for joining us today. I'd like to begin by asking how the book came about. I didn't uh, intend to write a book. What happened was that I had stepped out of my role as leader of the Women's Equality Party. Um, I had been doing that job for about four years And in the period of time I'd been doing that work, the um, landscape had changed really dramatically. We had set out as a bunch of sort of joyful rebels launching Britain's first feminist political party uh, with great hope and optimism. Um, We also didn't know what we didn't know. So, you know, we were um, joyful amateurs as well. And we had a blast. We really had a had a wonderful, wonderful time. Um, we were think I think at the beginning it felt like we were really surfing a wave of impatience um, with the other political parties. There was a lot of interest in what we were doing. There was a lot of uh, support. And then as you know, as time went on, the 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 political landscape just got more and more dark. Frankly, um, it. it f- fractured and splintered in so many different ways. We had the EU referendum and the dreadful impact that had on the way in which the political conversation was being held. Trump was elected, which was truly depressing. Not, you know, it wasn't even so much that this was a man who was a sort of misogynist, racist pig, but that there were so many people sort of, you know, pleased to say, great, I can go and vote for him, you know, Tell me where to tell me which way to go to go to support this man. I spent a lot of time being asked to go and do political interviews, which were pantomime. It became more and more pantomime as the political debate got more and more extreme. Actually, you know, it, there was a lot of there was a lot of hatred. There was a lot of debate in bad faith that sort of was masquerading as good faith debate. There was a lot of times I was sort of put out opposite a misogynist in a nice suit to discuss you know, whether women's equality was entirely necessary. You know, there was a lot, there was just a lot that was frankly disingenuous and really tough. And it, and it was really, really tough. And, you know, I, I went out and I wasn't going out on my own. There were teams and teams of wonderful women at the Women's Equality Party that had my back, that supported me every step of the way. Uh, but it was, it was a hard slog. It was a really hard slog. And, and also I, you know, became increasingly aware. It was very much a learning process very steep learning curve, not just in terms of 
how to get yourself into a political debate that doesn't want you there, frankly. You know, our party system is very much focused on two political parties. But it was also very much about how to how to try to have a conversation and bring people with you. And, and when everything was set up as, no, no, you just have to have a fight. <laughs> so this is a very long-winded answer to your question, but that was the background. And I think it matters because when I ultimately stepped down, it was also with the understanding that I was a white middle-class feminist talking about feminism. And in such a such a stew pot of, of stuff. All of the experiences of women from multiple different kinds of backgrounds with all sorts of intersecting and different perspectives and experiences of um, discrimination were not getting a chance to be seen and to be heard. And so I was tired. The embers of my activism had burned very low. But I also felt that if the party was to continue to grow and if we were to be able to be most efficient and 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 have the biggest impact in what we were trying to say, it really needed to be somebody else saying it. It needed to be a different woman with a different lived experience saying it. So I stopped and I stepped down and I spent about three months lying on the sofa with the curtains drawn, feeling shattered and thinking, gosh, you know, what, what happened there? And the book began to take root as, as my thoughts began to turn to some sort of understanding of what happened to me, essentially. How could I make sense of that whirlwind four years and the many years beforehand when I had been you know, campaigning for my daughter and for, for girls with autism? And I started to think, well, I wonder if it might be possible to put all this together in a way that supports other people who are feeling that it's all too much. I wonder if it might be possible to work out if there are common points on this journey that we all experience and can learn from. And that was when, you know, I sort of thought, well, I wonder if actually what I'm doing here is something that I'm going to be doing for life, that this is a philosophy for life rather than a series of pitched battles. And I thought if I can understand it and present it as a philosophy for life, then that might be a whole lot more sustaining and, and encouraging and optimistic than, you know, feeling like you sort of throw yourself into the fray and then sort of limp out, <laughs> limp out and stop. And so I guess I'm very interested in the, the three months on the sofa because you still had young children at the time. How are you managing to sort of combine the recovering from a political onslaught for a few years and also life? Well, I have four children and we are a blended family. At the time, they would have been about eight. Well, the youngest would have been eight and the eldest would have been about 16. My political career was largely possible because my husband is a feminist and is my soulmate and my darling partner. And he sort of made all the meals for four years <laughs> and, and um, well done. looked after the house. And I mean, that's not to say, you know, the Women's Equality Party, I think, was a different kind of political experience in that I was working with a lot of women. And when there were days where I, you know, I really needed to just not be there and, and be with my kids and be at home, that was understood. But it, it was a very, very consuming time. So that didn't happen very often. When I stopped, I I mean, I was really burned out and I was really sad and not very well. And I needed a bit of time to just to just be, actually. I think it was the first time in a very long time I had just wasn't challenging myself to be more and do better and deliver all the things and be at the front of everything and be first over the hill and rally the troops. And so um, how did I manage it? I mean, I, I don't. I don't recall it needing managing. I think for the first time in my life, I wasn't actually managing. I was just being. And um, I, you know, I walked my littlest to school in the mornings and 
hung out with the big ones in the evenings and I don't actually remember that as being a period of my 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 life when I was full on managing the rest of my life absolutely <laughs> absolutely and it was only possible with an array you know with my with my husband and with an array of support and friends and understanding bosses and colleagues and you know co-workers okay so it's yeah you're letting it just be at that time I'm interested your time in a newsroom for 20 years beforehand and as a journalist and an editor I mean that from my experience of journalism is very stressful the idea that you know the political landscape was so much more stressful were you prepared in any way for how just how much it was well I mean I'd been a political journalist you know I I did a whole load of I did a whole variety of stuff while I was at Reuters I, I covered trade and politics and stock markets and economics and business and for a period was foreign correspondent around the end of the Blair years and the beginning of the Brown years so I had been in the middle of politics and had seen how it worked and um and that did help. I, I mean, you know, that did help, especially doing interviews when I had an understanding of you know, <laughs> the traps, <laughs> which isn't to say I didn't still fall into some of them anyway. It's an interesting question. And, and, and I don't really have a comparison because I hadn't done politics before. I don't know what it feels like to do politics, you know, from the other parties. I see a lot of brilliant women under intense pressure and a lot of abuse for being, you know, just out there in public talking about politics as a woman, let alone talking about women's lives as a politician. It did feel quite scrappy because, as I say, the Women's Equality Party was a new and small political party and it was like, get your elbows out and make space for yourself. But I don't think anybody could have predicted the referendum and Trump and Me Too, you know, the the pain of austerity, you know, really hitting hard. The I mean, there was just so much that came together during those four years, it, it was extraordinary. And, you know, the level of mistrust in politics, the, the level of mistrust in institutions and organisations that you see particularly now too, you know, there is such a vast gap between the haves and the have-nots and, and our democratic processes do, actually don't work very well. You know, when you look at, it was a report in the Sunday Times on, which was a surprise to precisely no one, I imagine, that the House of Lords is all men, Average age 70, 50% eaten, educated and have claimed £50 million in taxpayers' expenses, uh, in money from for expenses from taxpayers. And the House of Commons, where we are still nowhere near having equal numbers of women and absolutely nowhere near having equal numbers of women from minoritised communities. So, yeah, you put all that together and you have a deeply dysfunctional system, you know, into which I gaily launched myself. <laughs> and, and just even you recounting it, then and that's only taking up to, up to 2018 and since then we've had a global pandemic i mean the level of despair that i am feeling just you talking about it you were feeling it all but you were doing something useful with it it feels like i live in in denmark so i'm more for the kind of the scandinavian approach and actually levels of trust are fairly high here and everyone swears by kierkegaard and and he famously was was sort of big on despair being mm. something useful because it can mm. prompt change and it sounds like maybe that's how it was for you would that be fair when you were starting to write this book yeah definitely definitely I mean but also my character really which is that I'm not I'm not particularly sunny you know I don't sort of leap out of bed in the mornings 
you know, brace for another terrific, <laughs> terrific... Jazz hands. Yeah. I've always been anxious. I've always worried a lot. I've always felt great responsibility to get right whatever the task in front of me is. I was a nerd at school. You know, I was not one of the the cool gang. And I, if I'm honest, I think I've always felt like it, it was always a bit, it was always quite hard work and it was always a bit of a struggle. And, you, you know, I was always like trying to be good enough and never quite sure that I was. So my approach has always been really, right, how, how am I going to do this? How am I going to come at this? How am I going to give this my best shot? And I think my brain just sort of automatically fell into that pattern of thought as I, you know, recovered from this experience. And I don't know, I think it's a combination of sort of being quite diligent, like always doing the work, being a good girl. Mm-hmm. And also, but also just deeply, deeply frustrated at the state of the world, really deeply frustrated and feeling that, and I think my experience of, you know, the long process of getting my daughter diagnosed autistic and, and then getting the support, that was a real learning process for me that nobody's coming to your rescue. I mean, just nobody's coming to the rescue. It's on you. You have to do it yourself. And that actually that moment is really liberating because once you roll your sleeves up and try to work it out, you will find people with tips to share and experiences to share and, you know, an arm to take and a hand to hold. And that's where you find your community. And can you tell me a little about the process of, of getting that diagnosis and, and how difficult it was? It took five years. It took five years and uh, it was it was really, really hard. Oh, well, we could do a whole podcast on this, really. I mean, um, uh, SEN support is in a, a dire state. It is massively, massively underfunded. Um, our children are crowbarred into an education system that has a very small and very limited idea of what in inverted commas, normal is and inverted commas, normal learning uh, looks like. And it's absolutely crushing. It's crushing to see your wonderful child excluded and uh, classified odd or wrong or less. It's crushing to have to try to manage. You know, at the time I was, uh, for, a sing- for a significant chunk of this time I, in my life, I was a single parent. I was trying to you know, pay the rent, keep my job and frequently uh, have to leave early or adjust my working hours in order to pick my daughter up from school again because she'd had another horrible day or she'd been summoned to the headmistress's office. Or, you know, we had a special educational needs coordinator in her primary school who called me once to say that, you know, my daughter had rounded on one of the many bullies and and the the Senko said, well, you know, she brings it on herself. So that was the level of understanding we were dealing with. Um, And it it really brought home to me how bad we are at understanding, accepting, embracing difference. And also the general contempt that too many politicians and policymakers have for carers. I mean, I can feel like myself getting angry talking to you about this. That is always, it always always fans the flames of my (laughs) campaigning zeal. You know, that it just gets me going every time. There's so much to do and I'm so angry about so much of it. And... And I have seen, I've seen people hurt so badly too many times. But that's interesting about, you know, the anger, because we should be angry. I was very interested in the in the part in Five Rules of Rebellion about anger, you know, that as, as many of us as women are not encouraged in anger as we grow up and mm. we are directed towards something else like frustration or sadness. But you, you talk about the writer Martha Nussbaum's idea of righteous anger that fuels change. And I like the Athena Stevens quote that any reaction less than anger is complicity within a hurtful system. Are you quite good on anger? Are you comfortable yeah. with anger? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm quite an angry person, but I, but I, but I also... 
I also recognise how problematic that is, particularly, as you say, in a in a society that doesn't like women to be angry. I also recognise how problematic it is when you want to find common ground with others, you know, and I have made many, many, many mistakes in the past by being too angry, by being... I mean, I don't, I don't mean too angry as in, you know, there's, a, there's an acceptable scale. I mean, in a, I would say possibly inappropriately angry in an environment where I was with allies, right? So I suppose what I'm getting at here is that, yes, be angry, but channel it and work out where to take the energy so that you can get something good out of it rather than hurting other people with the extent of your anger or worse, letting it corrode you. I've experienced anger in all those forms. And I think as I've got older, I've got much better at at understanding that it it is actually a, a powerful energy, that if you channel it right, it keeps you going. It keeps you in touch with what matters to you. It teaches you a lot about yourself and the work that you're doing it's got a lot of messages for you, anger. So, you know, to listen to it, collaborate with it, channel it, understand it. And um, it's incredibly powerful. How would you encourage other women who may not be in touch with their anger so much to to do that or, or young girls listening? I would say the same thing, actually. You know, um, listen to what your anger is telling you. Let it show you the things that you care about the most and then use it for positive change. I think that's really good advice. Yeah. I wish you told me that when I was small, that would have been very helpful. <laughs> but And also, actually, if I may, other people's reaction to your anger is also very, very telling. And I, we saw that uh, very recently in the UK with the um, national response to the Sarah Everard case. And the, it sparked this huge outpouring of grief from women who whose experiences of uh, violence and assault and harassment all, all came spilling out. And the backlash that that immediately got from the sort of hashtag not all men crew, the very, very defensive, aggressive, uh, why are you telling me this? What have I got to do with it? And I think I think one thing that is really, really useful about anger is that it demonstrates time and time again that the systems aren't working. Like Your anger is the blinking red light on the flash, uh, blinking red light on the dashboard that says this system is broken and the people who try to shut you down are quite often the people who like the system exactly as it is so if you're getting people upset by what you're saying it can often be because you're saying exactly the right thing yes so you can actually monitor it from there you write about the fear of rejection that many of us experience but that actually many women have already been rejected because the systems aren't working for us in the first place and sort of appreciating that is almost like a sunk cost is that a fair estimation that that really struck me this idea of well okay yes it it's already not working so i may as well stand up for what i believe in yeah i mean i think that's where i got to as i get older i get i do get more i do get more radical i think i do you know i'm very much now in the sort of tear it all down and start again camp but I do also accept that effective campaigning involves interventions of all kinds and in all places. So, you know, it is necessary to work with and within the structures that exist while also pointing out what doesn't work and trying to rebuild better. It does seem a radical approach. I think a lot of the the way you speak about collaboration, the kind of the macho approach that has characterised politics forever, that you are you are suggesting a, a different way or, or at least a way that will will help people not currently benefiting from the power structures that we live in that that must meet with so much resistance on a daily basis i think it's quite hard to collaborate at the moment particularly because you know debate is consistently set up as a fight 
And I think social media has got a lot to do with this because it doesn't encourage collaboration and it doesn't encourage, a, a lot of it certainly, I feel, doesn't really encourage grace or kindness. You know, these are sort of businesses that basically want to pigeonhole us. They want to know our likes and our dislikes and then they want to sell us things. So it's really not in their interest if we all get all collaborative and, and gang up on them. And I think I think that combined with the kind of, you know, toxic political atmosphere of, of, of recent years has made it extremely difficult to to have meaningful conversations about, so well, to have any meaningful conversations. But so I think what I've learned is I don't engage with people who aren't engaging in, in good faith. That doesn't mean to say I only want to talk to people who, who think just like me, uh, although that's always nice. What I mean is I, I don't waste any time anymore on people who are just looking for a fight. I'm just not in that space at all. I, I haven't got the energy for it. I haven't got the patience for it. I haven't got the tolerance for it. I've got too much to do. It's a waste of my time. Yes, I want to collaborate. Yes, I want to meet people with different ideas and different experiences. And I want to learn. I've become very comfortable with the idea that, you know, I'll be learning for the rest of my life and that I will be making mistakes for the rest of my life. But I don't want to be schooled by someone who really has no interest in um, appreciating what I'm trying to say or what I might bring to a mutual understanding. So, yeah, nuance and grace, not terribly fashionable, but very important things that we are perhaps lacking. I wonder how you feel, how, how the way you feel about activism has changed over the last year, as you say, on social media, it's very difficult to have a conversation. You make the point in your book that actually people fear more when they are at home and when we are out in person, there is a greater understanding. It's easier to connect with other people. How can we do this right now? Well, I think, I mean, what's been really encouraging to me, actually, um, is that this paradox of the pandemic, which is that, well, technically we are locked down and separated from each other. I think in some regards we're more connected to each other than we've ever been. I think... I think in terms of appreciation of each other, now that we can't see each other quite so much, <laughs> but also neighbourhood communities that look out for each other, that have you know big WhatsApp groups who are who know who is shielding at the moment or who has tested positive and you know needs a hand getting the groceries in. Or, I mean, there's always been. I mean, this you know there has always always been a tradition going back decades and decades and decades of women community activists stepping in where policymakers have failed to provide instant support and expertise in their communities. And one of the things that, I mean, there's two things that I'm trying to talk about here. One is the immediate answer, which is I do think actually in many ways we are connected and we are better connected now that we have been forced to stop and assess the way we're living our lives. And we've spent a lot more time, you know, it started off as sort of if you were lucky enough not to be immediately worried about your job, there was a lot, you know, it was who's baking banana bread or sourdough or who's clapping for carers. I think that there are there are, are acts of community that started in the, at the beginning of lockdown and have continued. And I think that as time has gone on and, you know, the massive economic impact of this is going to is starting to be felt and and the disproportionate impact on on women, particularly and the most vulnerable members of our society, I think there has been a really heightened awareness of that. I do think there has been, because we can't look away. We can't look away. And, and it's been grim and and very challenging and, and, and deeply painful. But there is also something really good in this, I think, that has connected us all. Um, and I hope that we can find a way to keep, to keep building on that awareness. And outside of that, I would just say that what I'm trying to do is to be practical, 
I am on social media and I do still sound off on social media, but the work I do is not on social media. It is away from social media. And I, it is, you know, working for McAllister Oliverius, which is a feminist law firm, with a focus very much on equality and anti-discrimination work and supporting vulnerable people who have often been very much let down by the justice system. We're a plaintiff's firm. Or co-founding Activate Collective, which is a fund for minoritised women to run for political office and which also funds female community activists to get their projects off the ground and help them have an impact. What I really want to do is just to be practical and purposeful and, and, to, and to find out more about the work that other women are doing and to work out you know, if I can be useful. And you remain hopeful. You mentioned hope there. How important is it that we all remain hopeful? I think after food and water and sunlight, <laughs> it's the most important thing. I really do. I mean, I think it's it's what keeps me going. It's what drives me forward. It's It sets the bar. It's joyful. It's loving. And it's the ultimate act of defiance when people choose not to listen. I like the idea of hope as a sort of rebellion. You're very clear in the in the book that... We do have to look after ourselves as well as doing all of this or, or as well as stepping up. But you're very clear that it's not a message about fixing yourself first. And I'd love to talk to you a bit more about this because you quite rightly point out that one of the aspects of the current discussion about resilience is that we personally are the things to be worked on. And that this that lets corporations off the hook um, because it's up to the individual rather than the, the public corporations. And there's a great Guardian piece, I don't know if you saw, about how meditation has been taken up by big businesses to basically get people back to work. And I, not, find it, I didn't see that, but yeah, I'm not surprised. It's not a surprise at all. <laughs> I, I often find it, you know, I write about different cultural approaches to emotions, but I write about Scandinavia a lot. And my work is, is often championed by the right wing press purely for the bits where you can fix yourself and they completely ignore the bits that say, but actually we're in a lot of a better world if everyone looks after each other and mm. maybe pays more tax and maybe puts more of an emphasis on trust and equality. How do you balance that? How do we be fight ready, but not feel that the emphasis is all on us for fixing ourselves? Well, I think that's my starting point is always there's nothing wrong with you. There's really nothing wrong with you. You are being bent and bruised and twisted out of shape by systems that are designed for a tiny proportion of the of the population, really. The the dominant white, straight, non-disabled, upper middle class man who runs pretty much all of our institutions, um, power structures. I think, yeah, I'm very, very suspicious of this sort of lean-in approach to activism and feminism that says, you know, it's on women to try harder. <laughs> all you have to do to, uh, you know, get through hundreds of years' worth of barriers of sexism, racism, misogyny is just try harder, ladies. I, I mean, it's just bullshit. But there's all sorts of people trying to sell it to you and it, and in quite seductive ways. So look, I mean, I would always say that um, you do have to look after yourself. It's it's sensible to be healthy. It's sensible to meditate. It's sensible to do, to do yoga and drink green juice and feel the sun on your face and walk and breathe and centre yourself and remember always that you are enough and that you are connected to something I don't know, you know, whatever your spiritual preferences is, is or none, but that you are your whole self and you are enough. In terms of campaigning and activism, I think it's very much about doing what you can do when you can do it. 
which you know takes you back to this idea of of activism activism as a as a philosophy for life. I know that there are times when I'm flagging, and that's okay because somebody else will be absolutely on their A game, and then there are other times when I'm absolutely on my A game, and somebody else might need a rest, and that's that's really okay too. It's it's, I I get great comfort from an understanding that we are all connected in this movement, and that we are all at different times in different places with different capacities and strengths and tolerances. I I don't think it's it's helpful. To any part of that movement, if there are, if you feel like you can't sit down and rest, and just find a patch of ground and look at a bit of grass or watch the clouds for a bit or sleep. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Are you for you personally? What are the signs that you experience when you do need to restore yourself? How do you get those signals that you are feeling low? So I get obsessive about whatever's bothering me. I mean, it's literally the only thing I think about and talk about all the time. It gets right into my head and right under my skin. And I get very knotted in my stomach. Uh, and that's when I, you know, usually think, realise, OK, this is apps. I have given, I've just opened myself up to this entirely. And it's, I'm all this thing and, and very little me. So I need to push the thing out <laughs> and be me again. So that's when I, I've got much better at recognising that. I used to, you know, barriers, boundaries. I used to be so, so bad at that. I would just absorb everything, everybody's needs and worries and requests and insistences. I would try to be all things to all people and there was just nothing left of me in the end. And I, uh, you know, and that's when you just fall on the floor because you can't, you can't carry all that for everybody else. It's not possible. So boundaries. Mm. Boundaries is not a good way of putting it, though, because then it just sounds, I don't know. I don't know. What do I object to in that in that phrasing? Boundaries suggests in some respect that you're cutting yourself off from other people. And it's not that. It's about accepting that you are enough in yourself and that you can do this work with and for other people, but you don't have to hold it all the time for them, I guess. I, I like the idea of being aware when we become more of the thing we're worrying about than ourselves and then trying to make it more trying to get back to who we are again yeah I know that for you running helps a lot do you feel sort of some headspace when you run yeah and well actually I mean lately I've been doing a lot more yoga and a lot more meditation because um I've buggered up my hips (laughs) from running as much as I have now that I'm an old lady so I run I do still run but much shorter distances I don't have I don't can't manage those glorious glorious long long runs anymore but yeah generally sort of moving my body and focusing my mind understanding that exercise for the mind is important as well actually practicing controlling sort of over worrying and negative scenarios I've understood much better in recent years that time that you have to set you know if you're if you're like me not everybody has to do this but that it is it is worthwhile and fruitful to exercise your mind in the way it runs as much as exercising your body in the way it runs do you mean like catastrophizing me going to the trying not to go to the worst case scenario yeah. do you mean thinking things through right well i don't i think thinking things through and catastrophizing are two very different things mm. right you can think things through without assuming that it's all going to go pear-shaped <laughs> okay understood thank you and i've read as well that growing up uh, you would go to art galleries a lot is that right and, and if so i wonder what part art and other forms of culture play for you now in ways to keep you feeling balanced and well 
Yes. Oh, goodness. Yeah. I grew up in Glasgow um, and um, my parents used to take me to the Kelvin Grove Art Gallery Museum pretty much every weekend. It rained a lot. They didn't have very much money. <laughs> it was the place they always went. I knew I knew, and I I would like to think I still know every every nook and cranny of, of Kelvin Grove. I miss it so, so much. I would love to be in there right now. Oh, my goodness. Yes, I do. I do miss art galleries. I do miss being able to wander and just gaze and sit. Yeah, very, very much. One day. Yeah. Hopefully not too long away. And finally, you've you've given me lots of your time, but I'd love to end by asking, knowing all that you know now, what would you tell your 21-year-old self about how to be sad well? I think I heard a phrase the other day, which was, um, you are not your feelings, you are the space behind them. That's what I would tell her, that it's okay to be sad. It's absolutely okay to be sad, but it's not It's not all there is. You're the space behind it. Just let it go through you and, 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 and find yourself again on the other side, because you will, you always will. I think that's great advice. Thank you so much, Sophie Walker. You're really welcome. Thank you so much for joining me today. Please do rate, review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help others find us and helps us to make more episodes. You can find out more about How To Be Sad, the book and the podcast online at Ms. Helen Russell. And take care. <laughs>